Well, hello again, and uh, welcome to Citizens. Uh, my name is David. I go by DC, and I serve as a family life pastor here. So glad to see you, and it's my uh, joy and privilege to share uh, God's word today uh, with us. Uh, a few weeks ago, we launched uh, a new series titled The Liturgical Life. Uh, liturgy is a word most commonly used in a religious setting. Uh, it speaks of the order of worship, the different rituals and practices of a church. Um, and, it's, uh, and there's a distinct rhythm that we have here at Citizens. And if you come enough times, you can identify what that rhythm is. Uh, our liturgy consists of a call to worship, uh, which you hear at the top. And then we sing a song of praise. We enter into a time of confession. Uh, we then receive words of assurance. Uh, we recite the Apostles' Creed together. And then uh, we respond uh, with a song of renewal. Uh, we have the preaching of the gospel. Then we celebrate that gospel by singing songs of praise. And then there is a benediction that we close at the end. And every Sunday we have the same rhythm. And so it's predictable. It can feel uh, routine. And it's easy to go through, the emotion, uh, go through the motions. But it is deeply intentional of why we do it this way. Uh, what we're doing on Sundays is reliving and retelling a story. And each liturgical element shares a part of that story. And we believe that this story is what our hearts desperately long for. Because it tells us of a story of a God who loves us deeply with sacrificial love. It tells us that he has unwavering faithfulness and that he deeply accepts us. And this is what our hearts long for. See, whether we are aware of it or not, we are all telling a story in the way we live our lives. And that story consists of a beginning, middle, and an end. And the different parts of our story are intricately connected to one another. And our stories communicate meaning, purpose, and mission. And we all have a story we're telling. And for some of us, the plot of our stories come from a deep personal experience that we've had. Maybe you're constantly trying to prove yourself, to earn the acceptance of others. To be acknowledged is the main storyline. For others, your storyline consists of a life of shame and guilt. You live your life trying to hide or run away or cover up, to atone for your mistakes. And so you live this life with a heaviness that you can't shake off. And for some, your story is about unresolved trauma and pain. You carry with yourself everywhere you go and into every relationship, bitterness, anger, and resentment. And many of our stories look like this. And they're a result of the hurt we've experienced from those closest to us, whether it's our parents, our siblings, friendships, and sadly, even the church. But along with these individual experiences, there are stories that are being sold to us by our culture. It tells us what a good story looks like. It's the good life. And the unique challenge for many of us in this room as Asian Americans is the fact that we had to navigate between two different cultural narratives. At home, a good story consisted of making your parents look good going to an Ivy League school, right, becoming a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, getting married and having kids. 
It's about how you represent your family, and this is the narrative at home. But then outside the home, it's about assimilating and gaining acceptance from the majority culture. It's about individuality, your accomplishments, ownership, and self-sufficiency. And with each storyline, whether it's personal or cultural, there's a liturgy. There are practices and rituals that fit into these narratives. It's how we make decisions, how we spend our money, what our schedules look like, what we prioritize, as well as what we're willing to sacrifice to live out these stories. For us here in this goal of our series isn't to just give us a bunch of rituals and disciplines to do, but rather to help us see that there's a better story that Jesus invites us to be a part of. A story that leads to a life of deep rest, joy, and fulfillment. And each liturgical practice will help us relive the story of the gospel in our daily lives. And if we can experience grace on a daily basis, it can dramatically transform every aspect of our lives and every relationship. So last week, Pastor Jason preached on silence and solitude, right? Creating room in our lives to deeply experience the love of God, to hear his still small voice saying, I love you, I got you, I'm here for you, I'll never abandon you. And it's so hard to hear his voice because of the noise in our lives. And so we go to the quiet place to hear his voice. And this is what our soul desperately needs. Today we have another very challenging practice, and that is simplicity, simplicity. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6, and we'll read verses 19 through 24. I'll be reading from the New International Version, the NIV, so you can go ahead and turn there. But it should be up on the screen for you guys to follow along. Let's give our full attention as I read God's word for us. Do not store for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break, do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. You know, every sermon that I have to preach feels like a self-indictment. Uh, uh, God's word has a way of exposing parts of my life. Uh, and this one stung a little bit extra. But I know that God does this to us uh, sometimes. He exposes us out of love in order to offer us something better. So we have this practice of simplicity. Uh, something we don't hear too often when it comes to spiritual disciplines. Other related words are frugality or minimalism. Frugality or minimalism, right? Being thrifty. I know that's very popular these days, thrift shopping, uh, especially for the younger people. Right? Buying secondhand clothes, not being wasteful, being conservative with your finances, this idea of being frugal. Minimalism. Right? Another growing movement in our time. 
And this is how I know that, um, that my phone is always listening and watching. Um, there's absolutely no reason for a video to show up on my Facebook video algorithm about minimalism. But this week, um, perfect timing, uh, a video showed up. Uh, and, and yes, I still use Facebook, for those wondering. But this video was about an extreme minimalist. Uh, his goal in life was to die with nothing. So he, you know, he had no phone, uh, no credit card, no bank account. He, um, he ate food that he can find. Uh, and he, and he, his life mission is to preach and teach about minimalism to others. And that's an extreme view. Um, but just kind of a normal view of, or normal idea of minimalism is to remove things from your life that doesn't serve you well and serve others well. So we have frugality and minimalism. And some of us were naturally frugal. Some of us are natural minimalists. And there are certain aspects of both of them in the idea of simplicity, but there's actually more to it. And unlike the other liturgical practices that we'll learn about, where we can implement and add certain rhythms and practices to our lives, simplicity is about adding to our lives by subtracting. It asks the question of what can I take out of, from my life? What can I live without? And this is such a hard question uh, to ask ourselves and then to answer. You know, I'm a YouTube uh, premium member, you know, small flex. Uh, I, I'm on a, a family plan with my brother who pays for me, which makes it that much better. But it was life-changing for me because my main form of entertainment is actually YouTube. And so I can go through all my subscriptions without any ads, and it was amazing. It was amazing. But there was a period of time when my brother forgot to pay the annual fee. And uh, the, the ads came back, and... It was unbearable. And I got so angry uh, at, at my brother. Because once you experience premium YouTube, you can't go back to basic YouTube. Um, and, you know, there's, there was like a day where it was just the ads would just keep coming back. And I didn't really message my brother, but I was getting really close to sending him a, a very passive-aggressive text message about YouTube. I'm like, yo, what's up with YouTube, right? Uh, but it eventually came back after a day. But it just shows how, how crazy uh, it, this life is and the conveniences that it offers. Right? So when you're so accustomed to a way of life, it's so hard to go back. Right? It's the same for me when it comes to minivans. Like we've, we've had a minivan for about a year and a half and we have four kids. Like I can't go back to an SUV. The SUV life now means nothing to me. It's all about the minivan, right? The spacing, the trunk space. But this is the challenge of simplicity. It asks us to do a thorough inventory of our lives and asks us what is not needed in our lives. It's a piercing and intrusive question, especially in our time, living in a city like L.A., being the type of community we are, because we're so image conscious. What we wear, what we drive, what jobs we have, what home we live in. And then when you start to have kids, you start comparing your kids to other kids, 
what they wear, what activities they're part of. And what perpetuates this attitude is the access uh, to see what everyone else has. Then feeling left behind or less than because you're not there yet, wherever there is. And so we're in this constant state of discontentment, frustration, because we're not traveling to the same places other people are traveling. We're not living in the same type of house that other people are living in. Not at the social gatherings others are at. Not driving a Tesla. And it seems like our kids are way behind than other kids. Now, I want to be careful. None of these things that I mentioned are evil. But the question we need to consider is the good life that we are in pursuit of, is it the same good life that Jesus came to offer you and me? What we are in pursuit of, is it the same life that Jesus came to give us? You know, there, is, there are a few definitions of simplicity, but one that I want to share with us comes from Joshua Becker, an author and pastor, and he said it so well. The intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. I think this is a good definition. You know, the passage we read was a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he was teaching his disciples about the good life. He was describing his kingdom and he was characterizing citizens within his kingdom. And this sermon, uh, which starts from Matthew 5 and runs through 7, aren't instructions of how to enter into God's kingdom, but rather it describes people that are already in his kingdom. And that is a very important uh, uh, fact to remember when you're reading the Sermon on the Mount. It's not about how you get in. It's actually describing the life of a kingdom citizen. And Jesus' kingdom, I really recommend you guys to read it is one of peace, joy, compassion, forgiveness, restoration, acceptance, and love. What you won't see Jesus doing in this Sermon of the Mount is emphasizing individual salvation. You won't see him mentioning that. The kingdom life is deeply communal. It's subversive. It's countercultural. It's about loving your enemies. It's about looking after and giving to the poor. It's being, about compa- it's being compassionate to the least of these. Loving your neighbors. And what we learn about the kingdom life, the kingdom life is not about waiting to get to heaven, but rather living the kingdom life here and now in all, of, all the different spaces of our lives. And what he does here in our passage, he identifies the things that obstruct us from experiencing the good life. The things that squeeze joy and peace out of our lives. Verse 19 again. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. And we see this same issue coming up over and over again in Jesus' teaching. A warning against money and things. You know, of the 38 parables Jesus taught, and parables were short stories that taught kingdom principles, describing what the kingdom life looks like. 
16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught was about money and things, which really, put things in, which really should put things into perspective. Right? Thinking about what the church is just fighting against in our world. One of the greatest threats to our faith and what gets in the way of us experiencing the kingdom is possessions. It's our obsession with consuming things. And we see this very tension in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Because the kingdom that the disciples envisioned was completely different than the kingdom Jesus came to build. You know, the disciples, along with the majority of their contemporaries, had a geopolitical kingdom in mind. To them, Jesus was a king who would come to overthrow Rome and to reestablish a theocracy. And who was in line to get a seat at that table? The 12 disciples. They had in mind prestige, position, and power. And that's why you see the disciples debating Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest amongst them? James and John comes to Jesus. Can, can we be on your right? And can, I, can we be on your left? Not knowing what that actually meant. And that's when you hear Jesus say things like, if you want to be first, you got to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you got to be, the, you got to be a servant to all. Prospective disciples will quickly change their mind when they come to Jesus saying, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. When Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Quickly disappointed, they left. They weren't able to follow Jesus. Simplicity was Jesus' life. He was born in a stable placed in a manger. He was a carpenter, making things out of wood. He had nothing to his name. He didn't own a home. He didn't have a fancy wardrobe. He relied on the generosity of others as he traveled to teach. And he would ultimately die as a criminal and be buried in a borrowed tomb. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And each time there was momentum being built up in Jesus' ministry, people wanted to give him a throne. People wanted to raise his platform. People wanted to give him more things. What do we see him do? He resists and he retreats, knowing that his mission was different. You know, the disciples had real worries and concerns, wondering about what they will eat where they will stay, what clothes they would wear. Right after this passage that, that I just read, Jesus tells the disciples not to be anxious or worry about anything. But the thing is, they really had things to worry about following after Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He points them to the lilies of the field and the birds in the air. And he reminds them, God feeds them, God clothes them. How much more Will he do that for you? Don't worry. Do not be anxious. Your father knows all your needs and he'll give them to you. And then Jesus gives them this promise. Seek first my kingdom 
and my righteousness and all the different things that you need will be given to you. Everything you need will be given. You know, my kids, they love going to Target with me. And they especially love the toy section. And I let them window shop all the time. And, um, you know, I'll just be on my phone just walking around. And they'll come up to me with a toy in hand and say, Dad, 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 I need this. I need this. And I'm like, no, you don't need that. You actually want that. Go put that back. And again and again, we'll go through this. And it happens at the cash register too, when they see all the candy. Dad, I need the chocolate. I have to again remind them, no, you don't need it. You want it. You have three other Barbies at home. We have plenty of snacks at home. You want it. You know, what I realize is that we're not too different from our kids. Our problem is the same. We conflate what we want with what we need. This is the reality of living in America. I need that bag. I need that vacation. I need that new phone. I, I need that new model. We need bigger and better. You know, this is not a joke. Months after Jane and I, we bought a home in Temple City. Um, I mean, sorry. Uh, weeks after we, we bought a home in Temple City, Jane and I, we started sending each other Redfin uh, links to other homes. Not, I was like, not crazy. We just, we just bought a home. And now we're already thinking about the next home that we want. It's a sickness. See, something happens when we habituate consuming things. It actually starts consuming us because it doesn't end. There are new offerings of bigger, better, more efficient things that sells a solution to our problems. We even know that the happiness that we experience is short-lived from these things, but it doesn't stop us. You know, Paul uh, Mazur of the Lehman Brothers which was the fourth largest investment bank before the crash in 2008. This is what he says, and this was so scary. This is what he says. We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the, uh, uh, the whole had been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Means, desires, must overshadow his needs. Sorry, man's desire must overshadow his needs. And it's so scary because I think America succeeded in this, in making this a reality. See, what we promote in our lives will naturally demote other things in our lives. And this is the problem with the obsession we have over money and things. Now, you might be sitting here wondering why you came to church today. This message isn't a protest against, against capitalism. I'm not promoting everyone to li live extreme minimalistic lives. But there is a cautionary tale we need to heed from Jesus' words. Jesus says, where your treasure is, 
there your heart is as well. See, the attributes of your treasure will be inevitably reflected in your heart. The attribute of your treasure will take shape and form in your heart. So if your treasure is in the stock market, don't be surprised when your emotional health rises and falls with it. If your treasure is in actual material things, don't be shocked when you're dissatisfied, when you see others have the newer model of whatever it is. If your treasure is on experiences and vacation and events, don't be surprised when you feel dread on that flight back home and when you have to go to work the next day. See, what we see in God's plan in creation was for man and woman, Adam and Eve, to exercise authority and subdue creation, cultivate the land, name the animals, have positional authority over them. But when sin entered the world, it disordered this order that God had, had in mind. And Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans, this is what he said. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to, in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Simplicity is a practice that can slowly bring back the right order that God had in creation, where we are stewards and managers of things and not slaves of things. It's interesting what follows Jesus' teachings, teaching on treasure. He talks about the eyes. Verse 22, the eye is a lamp of the body, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? What do our eyes have to do with treasure? You know, for the first century audience, a healthy eye had a double meaning. It means that you've, you lived your life with deep intent. There was a deep focus and intentionality in how you lived your life. And secondly, the second meaning is you responded to the needs of the least of these, of the poor. You had clarity regarding your life, and then you had compassion on your neighbors. That's what it, me that's what it meant to have a healthy eye. An unhealthy eye was the opposite. You were wandering aimlessly, living your life recklessly, and you would turn a blind eye to the poor. See, if our chief end in life is about accumula accumulating and just consuming, everything, everything in our lives can't help but be commodified. Your time, your work, people, and sadly, even religion. Everything becomes transactional. We dehumanize others. See, whatever is at the center of your worship will dictate your liturgy. The practice of simplicity is an active resistance 
in giving into the lie that you are what you consume. You are your wealth and your possessions. See, simplicity creates space for us to experience two prominent features of Jesus' kingdom. First, the providence of God. The providence of God. It's a form of detox where we intentionally choose to live with less and live on less. We can actually start separating our wants from our needs. And although it may be uncomfortable and painful, you'll realize you have so much. You have so much, and you are blessed with so much from God. And continued simplicity puts you in a place of dependence and reliance on God. You're forced to trust in God for your daily bread. And secondly, second feature of the kingdom life, being generous with others. And so because you're not spending as much, you have an opportunity to be generous with others. Generosity was part of God's original purpose for his people. See, when God blesses Abraham and promises to make him into a great nation, what what does he say to him? I will bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. Jesus called his followers light and salt. Our vision here as citizens is to be a city on a hill. See, we aren't blessed simply to be blessed. We are blessed to be a blessing. When our goal in life is about consumption and just consuming things, it clogs the very pipeline in which God's goodness was meant to flow out. Simplicity is needed in our lives to prevent us from getting sucked into the narrative of our culture. Having and living on less will allow us to experience God's providence. So how do we practice this? Where do we start? Very simply, first, this is very doable and practical. And you might really not think much of it at first, but I think it can be very effective. It's to declutter. Start going through all your stuff at home and create piles of things that you no longer use or aren't needed. And what you can do is you can donate them or actually you can sell them. Right? Basically Marie Kondo your house. And doing this will make you realize some things. You don't need all of this thing. Oh, okay, it'll make you realize two things. Man, I am so blessed. And secondly, I don't need it. And what it'll also do, you will actually enjoy the things you actually do need. You'll appreciate them more. See, physically seeing all the waste and realizing what you can actually live on can influence your future stewardship and spending. So declutter. You could do this right now, today, when you go home. Secondly, this is a little bit harder, is to recalibrate. Recalibrate. The intentional promotion of the things we most value and the removal of everything that distracts us from them. You can tell me what you value. You can even write an essay of what you truly value in your life. But your schedule and your monthly statement will speak the honest truth. There's no way around it. 
So the challenge for us is to take a look at your schedule and actually take a look at your spending and honestly evaluate what you value. Is there a category in your monthly budget to give to God and give to others? I'm not going to put a percentage on it, but start somewhere and be consistent with it. And I understand how intrusive this is. And I know how hard this is living in L.A., living in a recession or inflation. It's so hard can we can use every penny and I feel it too I'm with you guys my son recently came to me asking me can we get Wegu and I was like Wegu is that an app and I asked him what do you mean by Wegu he's like Wagyu can we can we get some Wagyu steak and I was like Wagyu steak well how do you even know what Wagyu is my kids eat enough already, but now they want Wagyu. I'm like, I, I can't afford this. I understand how painful it is to look at your budget and actually to even set aside. But I want to challenge you. Does our schedule and our spending reflect the kingdom of God? And I might be stirring the pot a little bit, especially for married couples. You know, my intent isn't to bring tension to your marriage because I know finances can be such a contentious thing when it comes to family. But at the same time, I have a responsibility to love you and tell you Jesus offers a better way. There is a better story that we're called to be a part of. And the sobering truth is our liturgies will be passed on to our kids. They will see. We can't lie to them. They see it. And our liturgies will be passed on to them. They will see and they will adopt our stories and our liturgies. And what story are they adopting? The intentional removal of things and the lingering absence of them can slowly disarm the power of money and possessions and the grip that it has on our lives and it creates room for us to prioritize and possibly explore Christ being our greatest treasure that's the hope that's the dream for this series that we would treasure Christ above all things because it is in Jesus we are given a new story where we're able to see ourselves as we truly are through his eyes you know, Inception is one of my favorite movies because it demonstrates the power of narrative, of how an idea can radically change our lives. And at the end, if this is a spoiler, shame on you. You should have watched this movie a while ago. In the final conversation between the father and son, that conversation will deter determine the future of this huge energy conglomerate. And as the father speaks, in a faint, faint voice, the son hears the father whisper, disappointed. He hears those words. And this is what Fisher Jr., the son, says. I know you're disappointed that I didn't turn out to be like you. Fisher Sr. says, no, no. I was disappointed that you tried. Boom. 
boom. The son disperses his father's business, and that was the whole goal. The power of an idea, the power of a narrative. See, this world will tell you that you need to earn, achieve, and accumulate to have any worth in this life. The gospel story tells you you are loved, accepted, and secure by grace as a gift of love from your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our world tells us to grab as much as you can for yourself. In Jesus, we have a Savior who emptied himself of his divine privileges. He traded his heavenly crown for a crown of thorns to die on the cross for you and me. The world offers temporary solutions to our eternal desires. Jesus says, you are mine now and forever. Your status and inheritance are secure with me. You and I, we're co-heirs with Christ. Friends, what story are you living in right now? And Jesus is inviting us to be a part of this story. May we live our lives individually and as, as a community that reflects this gospel story. May grace and generosity be experienced within and may it also be poured out to the city of L.A. for his glory and for his namesake. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a difficult message to hear, um, especially living in this time in a city like L.A., um, where we measure our worth by the things that we have, the experiences that we have, the clothes that we wear, what we drive, what we own. Holy Spirit, help us to see the true beauty of the gospel story, that, that there is indeed a better way, a life of joy, rest, and satisfaction that you offer us, where you call us to stop trying, stop trying to earn and just receive. Help us, Lord, to take you up on that invitation. Thank you for the story of redemption that you can even change the worst parts of our lives and to redeem them and make something good from it. Thank you that we have a story that doesn't end in this lifetime, but we have something that we can be expecting towards. You, are, you have a room reserved for us in your kingdom. You are holding our inheritance for us. May our lives reflect these amazing truths in our relationship with money and things that we can have a loose grip on them and that we can even be generous with others. Help us, Lord, to see our lives through the lens of the gospel and help us to see others as image bearers worthy of your love and your grace. And may we as a community live in the abundance of the gospel truth. Thank you, Lord. We need your help. Give us the strength to practice simplicity in our lives. We give you all the glories. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.